Our family takes a lot of road trips. And before every road trip that we take, we begin to create a list of the things that we will need for the journey, and we begin to cross things off that we will not need for the journey. Vanessa and I inevitably have this, this back and forth about uh, determining uh, what's coming with us. What, what must we take? And if you were a fly on the wall in our house when we are preparing to take a road trip, to, to make a journey somewhere else, you would hear phrases like this, why are you packing that? We do not need that. We cannot forget to bring that item. Don't let me forget. We need to make room in the vehicle for that. Well, then I'll just tie the kids on the roof. You will hear many phrases because we're going back and forth trying to figure out what is necessary for the journey and what we must shed in order to make the journey. And in a similar way, as we are coming to the end of the book of Hebrews, the writer of this sermon is helping his friends to create a sort of list. He's providing a list for them. What are the things that you will need in order to make this journey? Now, one of the constant themes that we have seen running through the book of Hebrews is the theme of pilgrimage or sojourning, that God's people are, are on a journey to a destination that we have not yet arrived, that we have the need of seeing the world and seeing our lives as this journey. We are, we are in progress. We are a people en route to home. We, we must think about this as it pertains to the ways we attach here. We're a pilgrim people. This is our identity. But if we're going to make this journey, if we're going to travel this path well, then we must pay attention to the virtues that we must have in our lives. We must pay attention to the virtues that should be forming us, the kind of character that must be forming in us, not just as individuals, but as a community. We are a pilgrim people. Christians are on the last leg of a journey through the wilderness to the promised land. We saw in chapters 3 and 4, didn't we? Christians are on their way to a better country. Christians are headed toward a city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. The writer continues to highlight the destination, but he says, you have to pack up the car right. I want you to pack your lives with these virtues so that you can make this journey in the right way. But it's not just about that. Part of God's design in cultivating virtue in his people is that the journey is supposed to fit us for the destination. The journey, the virtues are meant to fit us more for the ultimate destination. And so this morning, we're going to approach our text through two points, where we consider the dynamics of virtue and the destination of the virtuous. The dynamics of virtue and the destination of the virtuous. So when we look at our first point, we're considering the dynamics of virtue. Now, virtue is, is maybe an unfamiliar term to you. 
It's a term that is somewhat uh, not part of our everyday usage. But virtue is deeper than doing the right things. Virtue is not just about what you're doing. Virtue is about who you're becoming. Virtue is about who you are becoming at your core. And virtue is about who we are becoming at our core. Because we all know that we can do the actions, the the deeds, but God wants not just the deeds, he wants the inward formation of his people. Virtue is an issue of what you give your heart to and how deeply you give your heart to it. That's virtue. It's about the habitual practices and character that forms in you as a result of what you love. All right? That's virtue. And in this passage, we begin with verse 1. Verse 1 says, let brotherly love continue. But what you need to appreciate is that every virtue, every bit of the exhortation that follows is an outworking of that love. Love is the chief virtue that is expressed throughout the rest of these verses. What does love look like? We know that we live in a context that has a very amorphous definition of love. Love is basically bare permission for me to do what I want. If you love me, then you'll just co-sign on whatever I want to do. You will agree with all of the things that I want to do. But here we see that that Christian virtue, the way that love works in the, the, the church, is very different from our social context right now. Love takes form in these particular ways. But notice that he calls it brotherly love. And so everything that we're talking about in this passage has to do with the way in which we are growing together in virtue as a community. This is about uh, the dynamics of virtue within the community of faith. How do we deal with one another? What kind of community ought we be? This isn't primarily about how Christians deal with outsiders. There's plenty in scripture to talk about that. This is particularly about how Christians treat one another and deal with one another and relate to one another. And so right up front, I think it's challenging for those of us who are playing into the the typical trope of bashing the church. It's easy to find all kinds of things wrong with people because we all are needy. Becoming a Christian doesn't all of a sudden make you into this incredible person. But there is a value for the the church that is held out here. There There is this encouragement to, yes, it's flawed. Yes, the people that you have to deal with in the church disappoint you. Yes, the people in the church can give you a headache. Yes, they can do egregious things at times. But there is this call. If we all begin to deal with one another in these ways, it will begin to foster the kind of environment where we all are reshaped and refashioned over time. So that's what we see. It's a brotherly love, and he wants it to continue. This is what is going to shape their experience. Brotherly love. What you hear in that is the adoption of new relationships to other Christians. You can no longer safely disregard other professing Christians. There is room for challenging error. 
There is room for calling people to higher standards. But the internal disdain, there's no place for that. There is the adoption of a new way of looking at one another. We begin to see one another as God sees your family in the faith. There's this invitation to see that. It's a change of of our thought, our word, and our deed toward one another. And so he begins to work through the various expressions of this brotherly love. And he comes to, in verse 2, he says, Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. Hospitality to strangers. This is a compound word in the Greek text that says stranger love. All right, so what we're going to see is the various, various expressions of brotherly love. So here we have stranger love. In this, in this context, there's, there's an interesting choice of words, isn't it? Do not neglect. And it shows us that one of, the, one of the ways that we tend to fail at expressing this virtue is through passivity and a, 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 a low-grade fear of what might happen to me if I invite those folks into my life. And here he's calling them to this, to this stranger love, this hospitality. Christians are to be within their family, those who love to lean into the difference because they see in that unity and diversity the kind of transformation that they need most. And that's why we are striving and longing to grow as a cross-cultural community. You don't need a bunch of people who who all share your culture and your blind spots. He's saying stranger love is supposed to be a hallmark of Christian virtue, but on the back end of that stranger love is some of the most deep, lasting, important transformation that you can experience. It's, It's mutually informing. As we bring people into our lives, they in turn bring deeper virtue out of us or reveal the vices that need to give way to the virtues. Stranger love. Don't neglect stranger love in the family of faith. Verse three, remember those who were in prison as though in prison with them. This is prisoner love. And this is not just random people who are in prison. This is uh, Christians who are in prison because they have professed Christ and they are being opposed by the government in this context. This is Christians under the context of of oppression, because it wasn't like our current corrections system. If you enter into our current correction system, it, it's bad, but they feed you, and they, they are required by law to provide certain things for you while you are in that system. In the prison system of Rome, the only way you would survive is if your family and friends and outsiders actually came to the prison to meet with you. But something important that I want you to see in this text is he says, remember those who are in prison. Look at the text. Remember those in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated. There is this expression of love as solidarity with those who are struggling. That is a Christian virtue. That is, all of these things are demands of the high priestly ministry of Jesus. Remember, if you think big context, the the issue is this. What kind of people ought you be in light of the high priestly ministry of Jesus? What kind of people ought you be in light of the fact that you have access to the very presence of God through his blood? What kind of people ought you be 
since you are members of the new covenant. These are the virtues that should be in your life. These are all results that should flow from the good news of what Jesus has done as our great high priest. These are the virtues that should come up. And we should be a stranger-loving people, especially within the household of God, which is, again, the context. But we also must be a prisoner-loving people, a lover of those who are oppressed, a lover of those who are mistreated for their faith. We should be in solidarity with them. What's that mean? That means we share their sorrows like Jesus shared our sorrows. That means we enter in. Yes, it's going to cost us, but we're willing to pay the cost because Jesus was willing to pay the cost to be in solidarity with us. We are that kind of people. And the instant thing that hit me as I was prepping this was how the global persecuted church just goes unrecognized by us so often. At the very least, they could be constantly in our prayers, constantly in our heart, because many of them are laying their lives on the line. They are being martyred because of their faith. And so we have an obligation, according to this text, to support them. And we do, as a corporate entity, financially support the persecuted church. But I think there is more that we can do by way of solidarity in terms of prayer, in terms of concern, in terms of looking for other concrete ways that we can express that love, even if it's from a distance. Because you know what? One day we're going to need their wisdom. One day we're going to need their wisdom. That's one of the reasons why I'm glad for my upbringing in the black church. I learned how the old saints pressed on through suffering and through difficulty and through headwinds. And they held to God's unchanging hand. And they sang through it. I'm grateful for that heritage, and I think that we have a lot to learn from that. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. Do not forget those in prison and those who are mistreated for their faith. And next we have, let verse 4, let marriage be held in honor among all. This is marital love. Now check it out. These folks were surrounded by a sexually permissive culture. That was just the fact of Greco-Roman society. That's what they were surrounded by. But in the midst of a sexually permissive society, Christians were held to a different sexual ethic. The writer of Hebrews doesn't hold this as a like, take it if you like it kind of thing. He says this is really important for the, the kind of character, the, the, the moral courage that God's community ought to have. We ought to have this radical, countercultural way of thinking through intimacy, thinking through these sexual relationship dynamics held in honor, leaning in. To the, to the way in which this is a beautiful analog. People can see the gospel through the mutual commitment in this covenant relationship. This is something that should shine. And just a word to married people in here. The way in which we deal with our spouses is perhaps one of the most fruitful and profound ways that we can bear testimony to who God is and what God has done in the gospel. I'm going to need y'all 
I'm going to need y'all to take that one in. The way in which you forgive one another, the way in which you don't hold grudges against one another, the way in which you watch your tongue toward one another, especially when there are little ears around. Your marriage may be the greatest testimony to the gospel that your children grow up with. And for my single friends in here, this, this text does not exclude you. This text does not exclude you in the sense that as a corporate entity, you have something to say to us married people. You have words of encouragement and wisdom to give to us. We need you. You need us. That's the nature of being family. You are not second rate. You're you're not in a holding pattern until God somehow magically brings you a spouse. That's not your situation, according to the story of the gospel. You are full. You are in him. You are loved. You belong. You matter. You're valuable. And I want to affirm that. And I know we got lots of fruitful people around here. But again, I want to affirm guilty. There's one way to grow a church, y'all. Come on, that's one way. All right? <laughs> I want to affirm again that you are, you are godparents in the covenant community. And you have something to give and offer. You are valuable. And you are not an intrusion into our lives. You are a part of our lives. Don't feel like you, you, you are outside of the inner circle. I want to affirm that. Even as we affirm that marriage must be honored, all right? And I want you to notice something in this text. There's no culture warring going on in this text. It's a straightforward statement of the Christian sexual ethic. There, there's no alarmism about what's happening out there. He says, look, it, it, things can do whatever they're going to do out there in here. This is the way we operate. This is the way I want to call you to live in virtue. That's it. Straightforward in this call to faithfulness. Marital love. But then notice this. He says, he says this is the way that brotherly love works. All right, check it out. Stranger love, prisoner love, marital love. But then look at the one thing you are not to love. Money. Keep your life free from love of money. Be content. And it's interesting that this exhortation has a God word. There's a juxtaposition here. Look at this. Don't love money because God has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So you could, in a sense, say that this is about divine love. This is about divine love because to know that you have him is to be free. To the degree that you know that he is yours, you are free from the love of money and you can be content. You can begin to take stock of all that you have in him and all of the physical material things that you have in addition and you don't focus so much on the things that you don't have. We can then stand against the current of our culture that says more, more, more. I need more in order to be happy. You get the more and you say, that didn't make me happy. Maybe the more, more will make me happy. You get the more, more. And you say, the more, more didn't make me happy. Maybe I need the more, more, more. And you get the more, 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 and that didn't make you happy. That's because you're trying to find in the more 
what only God can give. You're trying to get from the more what only God can give. If you are trying to get money for security, or if you're trying to get money to achieve a certain social status, or if you're trying to get money in order to acquire something, you will always be disappointed. But some of some of the most secure and joyful people I know, they just express this contentment. They just have a, a settledness because God is theirs, because they have God. And that's the juxtaposition you see here. Be content, because he won't leave you. Money will leave you. Trust me, it will leave you whether you want it to or not. It will leave you through the car breaking down. It will leave you through the boiler blowing up. It will leave you when tree roots go into your sewage pipes and you have to pay money to get them to dig up the ground to make it right. Money will leave you. Christ will not. That's good news. The greatest treasure cannot be taken. The greatest treasure cannot be withdrawn from you. The greatest treasure cannot be stolen from you. Our inheritance is imperishing, unfading, and incorruptible. That's good news. Be content. God is indeed enough for you, but he must be enough to you. That's essentially what he's saying. Free from the love of money. And contentment, friends, I need you to understand this. Contentment is critical to cultivating a thick community. Because in as much as you are caught up with accumulating, in as much as you have an acquisitive spirit, acquire, 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 you will have less and less bandwidth for the other, and it will maintain shallowness amongst the people of God. The more and more materialistic we become, the the thinner and thinner our community becomes. You don't have the bandwidth for people. And guess what? When your life is all about acquisition, then you turn the other into uh, an, uh, an adversary. You turn the other into a competitor rather than a family member. Do you see that? Think about it. If you feel the need to acquire more, 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 climb the ladder. If you feel the need to climb the ladder at work, then guess what that makes the other employees? Competitors. You begin to look at them through the wrong eyes. You don't see them as someone to love. You don't, you don't humanize them. You're set off against them in, in an in a arms race. We're free from that. We're to be free from that. We should be the kind of people... Marked by gratitude and contentment. That's, that's a pilgrim virtue. I'm telling you, that will radically shape your journey. It will radically shape your journey. That's free from the love of money. He takes a pause, but then he continues on with this brotherly love. Verses 7 and 17. Remember your leaders. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. This is what we could call leader love. And I know that we live in an authoritarian, uh, we live in a context where there is a, a, a recoil against anything that is, has to do with authority. Because it seems to impose on our freedom. It seems to impose on uh, our quality of life. But in this text, 
There is a mutuality that is supposed to exist here between leaders and those being led. And it, it, admittedly, it's hard as a leader to get up here and, and to deal with a text like this. I'm glad scripture says it for me, right? So, um, but in a certain sense, do you see in its best iteration, leaders lead and love and care and people receive that as a gift. It's a gift to me to be led by people who love me. It's a gift to me to have someone who sees me in danger and won't leave me to it. It's a gift to me to have someone who will speak words of encouragement, words of counsel, who will be with you when you're suffering, who will be with you when, when you're trying to figure out how you're going to pay the bills. It's a gift to have leaders who will be with you when you lose your loved ones. It's a gift to have people who will walk with you when you're confused and you don't know which direction you're going. All of this is supposed to be a part of the way that leadership works in the local church, and it's for that reason that there is to be sustained between leaders and those led this love and this honor, not an antagonism. Leadership in its best and most beautiful iterations look like Look like what we see from Jesus and the apostles. They did not have any shortage of difficult words for their beloved people, but they were indeed their beloved people. And I, and I think that's important for us to say. There's something beautiful for us to image here as the community. That, that leadership does not operate in an authoritarian position, even though we have God-given authority. But God's people don't reject that authority and assume it's going to be authoritarian. You see that? We think the best of one another. And in that way, there is a beauty and a benefit. You see this? He says, he says, respond to your leaders in this way because it will be of no advantage to you if you reject your leaders. Do you see that in the text? It's in the text. I'm not trying to. I love you. I love you. And this text is here. And I promise you, I promise you that our leaders labor in loving prayer for you. We rack our brain. We see more of the problems of this church than you ever will. We see the inside stuff and we care. And we long to be people who lead in the likeness of Jesus. That's our longing. But guess what? We need your prayer for it. We won't just magically arrive there. We're going to make mistakes. We're going to fail. And we need your grace as your leaders. Most of all your prayers, but give the goodwill that we are men who know that we must give accounts. That is the most sobering word that I, that I keep in my mind as a leader, that I will have to give account for you. And I want to love you well. I want to serve you well. I don't want to be fearful to bring you hard words and I don't want to be slack in providing the good words of encouragement and love. Let's strive for that dynamic. Amen? Verse 8. I'm winding it down, y'all. Verse 8, he comes to this wonderful statement. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. And this thought helps to sustain virtue in the community of God. The same Jesus who was active on the pages of Scripture is active on the pages of your life. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, 
and forever. Jesus was tender toward the weak yesterday, and he will be toward you today and forevermore. Jesus was merciful toward sinners yesterday, and he will be so toward you today and forevermore. Jesus carried our sorrows and bore our afflictions yesterday, and he will continue to do so today and evermore. Your relationships may change, but he remains faithful and true. Your address may change, but he remains ever-present and available. The skies overhead may change to gray, but he will continually shine the rays of his glory and grace in your life. He is still the God who speaks pardon. He is still the God who speaks peace. He is still the God who says, Lazarus, come out. He's the God of resurrection. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And it is this Jesus who is out to produce virtue in his community. Virtue that consistently bears witness to his coming kingdom. And that brings us to our second point as we consider the destination of the virtuous. This is not saying, this was a risky point to title it like this. This is not saying that your virtues are what gain you access. Your virtues do not purchase you access. Jesus already paid for that. But there is a holiness without which no one will see the Lord. We saw last week in chapter 12. There is a veracity to your testimony that is displayed through your virtues. And those who who are growing in this, those who are enduring in faith, those who are pressing on through the headwinds and the oppression and and the outside pressure will see that glorious destination. Verse 13, verse 13 is one of the most difficult and yet necessary words for us to hear in our context. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. He brings back in this priestly context. And remember when we talked about uh, the, the new day of atonement in Jesus, remember when we talked about the day of atonement, that, that the carcasses of the animals were taken out and burned. And he uses that imagery in order to capture another aspect of, of the crucifixion of Jesus, that he was outside. He was put outside the city. He was marginalized. And then because Jesus, following Jesus, a cruciform people, because following Jesus entails a certain way of life, he's saying, let us, let us go to him outside the camp. We must bear up under the afflictions of Christ. This is a hard word in many ways. It's, it's the most succinct way of capturing what the writer's been saying throughout the whole sermon. This is it. They have need of endurance. They are tempted to try and save their hide by dissociating from Jesus. And he says, you have need of endurance. Let us go to him outside the camp. We can bear up under this. And in doing so, we will really be walking as his disciples. We will really be a cruciform people. We will really be a community that testifies to who Jesus is and what he's done. God's people will either bear the reproach of Christ, facing the hatred, the condescension, the mockery, the spite, the public shaming of our historic faith, or we will buckle under it and begin to surrender our Christian convictions and virtues. Those are the options that we see here. 
But there's only one way that leads to life and to glory. And it's, and it's to that glory that he points us in the following verse. Why bear the re- reproach of Christ here and now? Verse 14, for here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. In contrast with their present experience in their city, he holds up the life that will be theirs in the city to come. Imagine how this was music to their ears. You may be marginalized in your city, but you are citizens in the city that is to come. You may be experiencing injustice in your city, but you stand justified in the city to come. You may live under the threat of death in your city, but you live under the promise of life in that city that is to come. You may be lonely in your city, but in that city, you will be at the Father's side in the company of the family of God. They may want to silence your voice in your city, but in that city to come, you will lift your voice in shouts of joy and songs of praise. We are headed for a better city, a more beautiful city, a city with foundations. We are citizens there, and it's that destination that should inform the journey as we seek to be shaped in such a way that we will be at home there. You see, you see what he's saying? Everything that you are faithfully enduring in this city is being used by God to fit you for that city. This is the life to which God's sojourners are called. Let us lean into this in faith and hope and love. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. We pray that you would let it bear fruit. Let it find good soil. And let it bear the right kind of fruit in us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.